Okay, Parshas Miketz. It's part. It's chapter forty-one. It's on page Alicia. Alicia, what page is it? Two twenty-three. Two twenty-three in the blue chumashim. Um, page one in the Chayenus. Page eight. I was being what? sarcastic. Oh, page eight. Oh, you didn't even give me the right information. That's not helpful. I was being sarcastic. Well, I didn't understand that. <laughs> page eight in the Chayenus. Page two, something, something. I forgot, Alisheva. 223. 223. And if you're following along someplace else, and any other commission, Parshas Miketz starts at chapter 41. Okay? Parshas Miketz starts at chapter 41. With this whole hectic, busy, crazy week, has anybody had a chance to look at the Parsha? Yes. No. Nice. Okay. Aviv, what's going on? Dreams, and Viceroy, brothers, and trips. And you could, like, make a play about this, huh? Maybe. <laughs> Somebody should make a play about all this stuff, right? I read it in my peculiar book. Yeah, you read your peculiar book. Okay. Okay. We're going to be close by, right? Like in walking distance. Close that Parsha for now a little bit. How far are we from the shuk? Huh? How far are we from the shuk? Relax. I put you... You shouldn't have told us. You stressed this one out now. What's stressful? What's stressful? No. I'm stressed now. I don't know. I feel a bit stressed. Guys, Okay, okay. How about, how about let's try this. Let's try to learn some Parsha. And then once we stop with Parsha, I'm happy to answer any questions that are going on that people are stressed about. I'm not saying, I'm not looking to stress people out. I also understand that it could be stressful. The unknown is always very, very uncomfortable. So we're going to try to work with that and to try to sit in that space. And hopefully it will be beseda for everybody. Amen. Right now we're up to the Parsha. Parsha Smikates. We are, uh, so Aviv gave us a very nice summary. We got dreams, we got famine, we got, what else today? Brothers. Brothers. Viceroys. Stockpiles of food. Stockpiles of food. Stockpiles Stockpiles of food. Lots of stuff. Heads Okay, so let's go into, let's go into this. I want to actually, I want to actually start for a second by going back to the end of last week's Parsha. So whoever's working with the Chayeno, you're a little bit at a disadvantage. I apologize. Because I think that part of the conversation um, that's important for us to pay attention to is the two dreams that we did not cover last week. Last week we, shockingly but true, we ran out of time. Uh, so last week we didn't talk about, um, we, did not take, we did not talk about the last two dreams that we have in the, in the Torah portion. We have the dream of the butler and the dream of the baker, okay? And... Um, uh, now, the reason I think it's very important for us to, uh, well, the reason I think it's important for us to talk about it is because it puts Yosef into perspective. He's not just on the spectrum, but, uh, but, but it, puts, it puts Yosef into perspective, okay? By the time the butler and the baker come to j- get thrown into jail, Yosef has been in jail for 10 years. Okay, it's not clear in the text, but that's what the Medrash says in the first one we talk about. Yosef had been in, in jail for already 10 years when they come. And the reason that I want to start there, because I think it's so important for us to pay attention to this, is if you take a look in chapter 40, um, at verse, okay, verse 6 and 7, and verse, verse 5 talks about that they each had a dream, the butler and the baker are in jail, um, they had a dream, and um, they each had they each have a dream one night, and in the morning, pasuk uh, pasuk vav verse six, vayavolem yosef baboker, 
Yosef comes to them in the morning. Yosef has in jail risen to a place of prominence. He's, he's, one of the descriptions of Yosef is Ish Matzliach. Wherever he goes, he ends up being successful. Whether he, you know, here he was sold as a slave to Egypt and he rises up in his master's house till she gets involved and then he goes to jail and he sort of rises in prominence. He's in Ish Matzliach, wherever he goes, and we talked about it a little when we discussed his description of Yefei Tar, Yefei Mara, that he was beautiful inside and outside. He has that something internally and externally of, of that Rachel had. What right? is that concept? Matzliach. Ish Aleph Yod Shin Matzliach Mem Tzadik Lamed Yod Ches. Ish is in... No. No, Ish like a person. Okay. Ish, the first thing is Ish, ish is a person. Um, so he's, he's successful. So here he is. He's, he's coming around. He's sort of like a little bit in charge. And he says to them, he sees them in the morning, Vihine Zofim, and they are upset. Now, pause. Pharaoh's dungeon, jail, pre-ACLU and and Wi-Fi, it was really not like a pretty place. And he sees that they're upset. So he says, And he says, Why are you so upset? I can give you a hundred reasons why they're so upset, right? But Yosef, who has been there for 10 years already, he has plenty of reason to be upset. He notices two people who aren't particularly, in the end, they're not going to be particularly nice to him, but he notices that they're upset, and he stops, and he says to them, what's the problem? How can I help you? And, the, and, and really, the beginning of Geula came when Yosef was able to notice somebody else who was in a similar situation for, that he was in, and instead of just wallowing in his face, you know, lo tovli, it's not good for me, and I'm so uncomfortable, and it's terrible, and it's horrible, and the people are so mean, and the food is terrible, if there was food, he didn't say that. He was able to look out of himself and he was able to look at other people and was able to say, what's wrong? And he was able, and that really is the beginning of Geula when we're able to, when we're in a tight space and we can actually look at somebody who might be in the same space as we are and say, how can I help you? Is there a way that I can reach out to you? Um, the reason that I think is, now we know what was the end of the story, right? The baker gets hung and the butler gets uh, reinstated into his, his place. And what does the parsha end with? He, he gets forgotten. That he gets forgotten. That he, like, he, he, he forgets him and he forgets him. You know, like, he didn't remember him and he forgets him. It's, like, very active, not remembering. Now, um, I want to I wanna stop here for a second, and then we're going to move into our parsha. Okay? Because Hasidus talks about the idea that Yosef is every single neshama. We've had it when we talked about Avram, and this is going to be a theme that we're going to have. Yosef is every single neshama that it comes down and it gets stuck into jail. It gets stuck into a body and it gets stuck in a place that is really not so conducive to it being, you know, how do you in that space try to find God and Yosef from the root of Lehosif to add on. Remember when Yosef is named, his mother says, Yosef Hashem li ben acher, to add on. Yosef is that place of adding on. Within that place of darkness, within that place of of not holiness, Yosef is actually able to break out of the boundaries of the prison to be able to see the other and to be able to um, and to be able to to understand that there is service of Hashem even here, even in the space. And Hasidus explains that the Sar Hamashkin, the butler or the cupbearer, whatever you want to call him, uh, it, it it represents that place of pleasures that entice us that want to get us away from our Avedis Hashem. So Yosef, who's like focused on 
doing Avodas Hashem, when he starts to lean on the, on the butler and he says, can you help me? All of a sudden, that's not good for the soul. For the soul to say, what are these other pleasures, the wine pleasures, the physical pleasures, all those things that fleetingly make us happy when the neshama in the body leans on them, all of a sudden we get to a place where not only doesn't it help us, but we are then forgotten and we end up staying in, in a place that's not good for us for an even longer amount of time. So with that, we're going to lead into our Parsha, which is Miketh, whereas now two years later, okay, um, and oh, one more parenthetical thing, which I think is very interesting. When the Rebbe started talking, <coughs> six, seven, it's 11. Six, seven. Um, uh, that when the Rebbe started speaking about birthdays, there was a big uproar against, about celebrating your Jewish birthday, there was a big uproar against what the Rebbe was saying, and it says the only person whose birthday is mentioned in Torah is Paro, right? Because at the end of last week, it was, the day, it was Paro's birthday, and that's when he does this whole judgment thing, and the place of where we're able to, perhaps, this is my, my take, so you can take it or leave it, the place of being able to transform something that is externally so not holy to be able to say, this is the day that Hashem decided I am valuable and I am needed and without me the world can't exist, which is in fact what our Jewish birthday is, um, is sort of in that space of Yosef breaking out of jail. So I just wanted to put that there. Now, two years go by and Paro has a dream. He in fact is going to have two dreams. His first dream is... The cows. He has his dream of the cows coming up, the fat cows and the skinny cows. Um, And then he said, and then what happens? He then the skinny cows eat the fat cows, and he wakes up. Vihine chalom, and so he go. And what does he do? So he goes back to sleep. And then he has another dream, and his other dream is about. And his other his other dream is of grain. It's so crazy, like the things like or brain. Grain, grain, says grain, grain, huh? So, so I always heard of corn. I always thought of corn, that it's corn. And in my head, all the pictures we ever made were like these things of corn growing. And my kids are like, Mom, corn in Egypt, where does corn come to Egypt? There's no corn in Egypt, it's wheat. And see, I wasn't crazy, Amber says here. It, you know, it, translated as, it, translated, it translates it as corn, but it doesn't. But, he, but it doesn't say corn. It says shibolim. It's, it's grains or some kind of grain. So that was my new thing that I learned this year. Like that total like, what were you thinking? Corn in Egypt. Corn doesn't grow in Egypt. So yeah. So um, I, I see the chayeno is translating as corn. So I feel a little, better, a little bit better that I didn't totally make this up. But uh, my kid's like, no, it's going to be, it has to be, it has to be wheat. Um, so he, and so he has these two dreams and he's very, very upset. So I want to pause for a second. Rabbi Tversky says something very, very, very powerful says that um, the first dream that Paro saw of the meat, of the cows, you know, the fat cows and the skinny cows and then, and then the being uh, consumed by the one by, you know, the thin, that wasn't, that was bad, but it wasn't disastrous. But what he did then was that he went to sleep. And then when he went to sleep, the situation went worse and now we have no grain. And now we have no basics. Now, today, grain is like a dirty word. You're not allowed to say we eat grain. But in, uh, in, in the general society, if you don't have bread, you're going to die. If you don't have meat, it'll be uncomfortable. If, you know, maybe they didn't eat it so often. Whatever the situation was that, and Rabbi Tversky talks about in our lives, how many times is something going on in our lives? It's not disastrous. We could survive without it. 
But then because we go to sleep and we don't deal with the issue, we now have a bigger issue to deal with, and that is life-threatening, spiritual-threatening. It becomes a much more threatening situation because we ignored the small problem. When it was dealable and it was doable, it was something we could have maybe more easily fixed, but that power place of just going back to sleep and saying, it's going to be okay, it's going to be fine, is actually not the best way to live your life uh, in a conscious focused manner, and, and so that's, that's, that was something that I, 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 I resonates with me in a very deep way, like, so many how many times do we say, oh, it's nothing, it'll just pass, and maybe that wasn't always the right attitude. I mean, sometimes that is the attitude, sometimes that is the answer, and then how do you know, when do we just let it slide, and when do we sort of need to be more proactive about our, our you know, our, our part of it is, is a good question. Yes, Amber? Not a question, but I'm really cold, can I please turn the air off? It's not, it's heat is on. It's not heat. I'm just really cold. Yes. So there's, there's a window open. Go turn it off. Just turn it off. It'll be fine. Okay? Okay. So then what happens? So nobody has interpretations for him. And then this guy comes and he's like, there's this guy. I have a guy, right? Everybody has a guy, right? I have a guy. And he doesn't want to really want to say where he met him, but he sort of has to tell him, like, oh, when I was it. So I have a guy who's going to help the situation. Um, and, and some of the more modern commentaries talk about the idea that the, of the bracha of Yosef being forgotten in jail. Because imagine that Yosef had not been forgotten, right? Yosef had not been forgotten. And, um, and so he gets released. And then two years later, the Pharaoh has this crazy dream. And the guy's like, I have a guy, but... Hmm, I have no idea where he is. Like, I have no idea where, you know, where his, his journey took him. Here, it was very clear where Yosef was. He was still in the jail that the Pharaoh had put him into. So he was able to be taken from that place and immediately, caherified in the blink of an eye, be able to take, go from that depth, literally from the depths of the dungeon to the seats of power. Yosef is going to be, he's going to... It's, you see, he takes the time. He makes sure that they, they want to just take him straight to the pharaoh. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I need to get washed. I need to get shaved. I need to get a haircut, clean clothes. Like, you only get one chance to make a first impression. And he's like, oh, he's not going to let that opportunity go. He's not going to just show up, you know, and hope that his words are good enough, which is very interesting because we know that when the butler describes him, he also says... He, in Pasukid Beis, he describes him as a nar, ivri, evid. He's like all this derogatory terminology that he has for him, where he's... The person asks, like, what's the point of that, right? Because the Sarah Mashkin actually knows that at this... He, he's, kind of, he's kind of sure that Yosef's going to be successful. So if Yosef is, success, is, if Yosef is successful in what he does then why, would you pre why are you trying to prejudice the king against him? But that place of hatred is so deep that even though Yosef will potentially answer the Pharaoh's dreams and whatever's going to happen, but there's always going to be this place in the Pharaoh's, in the back of the Pharaoh's mind, Nar, Eved, Ivri, like there are so many strikes against him that were planted there by the Saramashki when he describes him, which I think for us is a very important thing. Like, how do we talk about people and how do we describe people, especially when we're talking to people who don't know the person that we're talking about, right? But how many times have you met somebody and you have a visceral reaction and then you realize, oh, it's, it's not about them. It's about something that I once heard about them and it's showing up here in this relationship. So I think that's something just as like a, a, something to think about that, you know, to be, to be uh, very, very careful about. Okay, and we know that Yosef comes up with this genius plan. 
What's the genie's plan? Save food, right? He says, basically, he says there's going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine, and they're going to be so terrible, Rashi says, you won't even remember the plenty. It'll be so, so, so terrible. You're just, it's going to be terrible, and you need to store food in, these time, in, in the time of plenty so that you have it for the time of, so that you have it in the time of famine. And one of the things that all the Mepharsham ask, like, nobody asked Yosef for a suggestion. They just asked him to interpret the dream. What's with the suggestions? And Hasidus explains that the dream is the answer. Because one of the things that Parah says is that he saw them standing side by side. He saw the fat cows and the thin cows standing side by side at the banks of the river. He saw the fat ears and the thin ears side by side at the river. And Yosef understood that there was something to that side by side that was very important. And the side-by-side side means that when you're in a time of plenty, you can't forget that there's going to be a, play, a time of famine. And in the time of famine, you have to under, if you had prepared, you would also remember that the time of... Then the time of plenty will sustain you when there's a time of famine. So I think of it a lot in terms of, of our religious fulfillment. How do we fulfill ourselves? How do we fill ourselves learning-wise, spiritual-wise, experiential-wise. Please, I'm begging, please try to ignore her. Um, how do we do that? And the only way to do that, really, is if we have in our head plenty and famine side by side. That means, like right now, when you're in a place where there's so much learning going on, there's so much Torah and so much, we're having these, we're having these conversations about God and meaning and stuff, we know it's not going to last forever. But do we somehow, do we store do we store nuggets and say, we're going to have this with us for when we are in a place of famine, where this isn't the conversation, where this isn't our daily routine? Can we somehow put those pieces in a place that is accessible for us so that the, fe- the, so that the plenty feeds us where, when we're in a place, maybe not exact famine, but in, not in such a place of plenty? And if anybody remembers, the first day, the first day you guys all arrived, I told you to have a notebook to write down things that, that take your breath away. And if you... Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to repeat it again, that when you're in a class, and it's, it's true wherever you are and whatever's going on, you need to have, I'm an old-fashioned person, I'm very happy with pen and paper, if you want to have it on a keep note or whatever, every so often you're in a class and you hear something that takes your breath away. It may be from a teacher, it may be from another student, you need to write it down because you're not going to remember it. And something that was so meaningful to you now possibly will be meaningful to you when you look at the notes in six months or in a year. If you didn't write it down, you're not even going to remember what it was. But you need to at least write down, create a place, a storage house of knowledge, of knowledge and inspiration for yourself for when you are in a place where it isn't all over the place. This isn't the conversation at the coffee, at the coffee machine. You know, We need to actually create that space of having the plenty and the less than plenty um, kind of working side by side, which is, which is uh, very important, okay? They eat the thing, they go, so Paris, Ephesians says what to do, and they store, the Torah describes it as a number that can't even be, can't even be counted, how much they store and how much they save. Um, So first of all, we have the second, Mem Aleph, chapter 41, verse 32, Yosef saying the reason the dream is repeated is because it's happening right away. It's going to get started right away. Gives him his suggestion. And then in the third Aliyah, which is at uh, chapter 41, verse 39, Parah gives him the job. He says, you're going to take care of this. Everything's, everybody's going to have to listen to you. Parah takes off his ring and he gives it to Yosef. And he puts him into beautiful clothing and they ride him through the streets. 
and um, and he he gives he changes his name in verse four in verse forty five. Para calls him Safnak Paneach, and he gives him Osnak Bat Patifera as a wife. Uh, and Yosef goes out all of, all of Egypt, and he's thirty years old at this point. And uh, over here in verse forty eight. It talks about how much they, uh, they, 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 they counted in 49. Yosef um, ga- gathers so much grain, like the sand of the sea, so much. They couldn't count it. There was no number that went that high to count how much they actually had. Okay? I want to pause for a second. Who's Asna? Daughter of Dina. Okay, so daughter of Dina. Um, according to one medrash, not everybody agrees, but according to according to at least one medrash, Osnat, who is given to Yosef as a wife, is the daughter of Dina and Shechem. Married his niece? Huh? No, it's how, daughter of So it says that she's the daughter of Potiphar, which would also add meaning. So there's so the medrash explains. The medrash says that Osnat was sent down to Egypt. Um, it's not something that we, in 2022, relate to so much. Um, and I do have a very hard time with it, personally. Um, the fact that she couldn't stay within the family, there was something about it that was too hard for everybody to deal with, maybe including her, I don't know. She ends up going to Egypt, and she gets, according to the measure, she gets adopted by, by Potiphar. Okay? And this Potifera is the same Potiphar who Yosef used to work for. And what do we know about Mrs. Potiphar? She, she, was, she was a little bit... She, so that's the, te- that's the simple text, but according to a lot of the Russian, it talks about that she saw that there was a spiritual connection between her and Yosef, but she didn't realize that it wasn't her, but it was her daughter. Okay? And so just for a second, I want to just plant this in our heads, that Osnat, who has her complicated history, and Yosef, who has his complicated story, gets sold by his brothers, you said, like, you know, this is like a complicated story, the two of them together have two children that are so amazing that Yaakov says they're part of the tribes. Menashe and Ephraim are going to be born now. Yaakov, of all the grandchildren, he says those two boys who were born in Gullus, they were born in Egypt, which is terrible, terrible, terrible place. They had no family around. There was nobody to go to Hanukkah parties. They had no bar mitzvahs or Pesach seders to go to with other families. And there was something about those children born in that place, in that circumstance, that Yaakov's like, the Jewish DNA needs, these, needs this in our makeup. We need them to be part of the tribes. And we know that whenever Levi is not counted, we always have to keep 12 tribes. Yosef gets split into two tribes, and he gets Menashe and Ephraim. So there's something, you know, I, I think that we have, I think it maybe is a place of hope that doesn't matter where we're coming from or what our complicated story is, but the fact is that each and every one of us is capable of greatness and instilling greatness, not just in ourselves, but in future generations. Um, and to be able to, to have families and have lives that are meaningful and beautiful and powerful in such, to such a degree that of all the, tri- of all the grandchildren, Menashe and Ephraim, they're it. They're the ones who can do it. Question. Is that added? It's only it's only when Levi is not in. Okay, so now counted like obviously half of them are not here, but like more than half of them are not here. You know what I mean? Like 
are the Menashe and Ephraim were full How's tribes. How does it still work out to 12? Okay, so it depends in what context you use the 12. So, for example, on the breastplate, Menashe and Ephraim are not there because Levi's on there. But when you divide the land of Israel, Levi doesn't get a portion, so Menashe and Ephraim do get portions. So, so they're getting Levi's portion? Kind of. Well, they're not getting Levi's portion, but Levi, Levi's portion is God. He doesn't get the land. So, you know, it says Hashem hu Hashem is his, his portion. So what happens to the land? It has to be divided 12. So Yosef also doesn't, there's no Yosef yeah. section. There's only Menashe and Ephraim. So Yosef gets, gets the, the, the rights of the firstborn in that particular case when they, in the, when, when they don't count Levi. Oh. How's that still 12, though? Because they're 13. It depends for what? It depends for what? I, I don't know what you mean from what. Okay, so Yosef and Yosef and Levi are each one. Yes. Anytime that Levi is not part of the conversation, Yosef becomes two. So it depends how we're counting it. You're only ever going to get 12. So if Levi is part of whatever it is, we're going to, we're, 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 uh, going to war. So let's say for a, a war of... Melchemist Mitzvah, the tribe of Levi is involved. Menashe and Ephraim are not part of it. Talk about dividing the land. Levi's not in. Yosef's not in. Menashe and Ephraim are in. You're always keeping 12. 12 is going to be, you know, the 12 months, the 12 axis. There's like a reason, like, all this 12 is going on. So we're never going to lose the 12, but the 12, the Menashe and Ephraim are really one that are split. So when you count the tribes, you never count Menashe and Ephraim. You count Reuben, Jim, and Levi, who do you count like that? Like, what I'm saying is, like, out of all of them, including Yosef and like, even if they were like two or whatever, there's 13. No, no, no. no. I'll, the, the math is confusing. Tell me later. We'll do it afterwards. We'll go okay. over the math afterwards, okay? Um, Beseder. And then, so they, so Yosef has, so Yosef has two children. The first child that he has is called? Menashe. Menashe. Why? For God has a reason my mind all hardship and even people Right? Which is like, Wow. Right, Menashe, because I forgot. Uh, I, 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 Hashem made me forget all the pain of my father's house. And his second is Ephraim. Why? For God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Because Hashem has made me fruitful in the, in the land of my suffering. Um, if we were to move it to modern terminology, I think that many Jewish organizations have one method of Jewishness, and it's never forget. Our, our Judaism is dependent on. Holocaust remembrance, which I'm not, it's very, I'm not saying it's not important. Uh, but the, the question of never forget is one way of Jewish engagement. But the question of Hefrani, are we moving to a place of expansion, of saying, how does Judaism flourish? How do we make this beautiful and grow? And really, at the end of the day, we know that when we actually bless our children and we use the names, we don't say Menashe and Ephraim, we say Ephraim and Menashe. We switch the names around. That there is a place that as much as the place of never forget is very important. And as Jews, we would be the first ones to tell you that, you know, there's a, the nation that doesn't remember its past is bound to repeat it in the future. We know it. We've seen it. it we've seen it in our lifetimes, in our gentle for, past. Like, this is not something that we're unfamiliar with. And yet, if that's all our Judaism, that we can't forget and we can't, you know, let everybody else beat us down, that's not inspiring and that's not growth oriented. And the place of Hefrani, of being fruitful and multiplying, is so, 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 so important. And that's kind of a little bit of where we need to sort of take our, take our, take our, our direction. What? Go ask Dory. Dory's gonna help you. Okay, baby doll? Go. 
can't help you now. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> um, can you wait a little bit? Sorry. Okay. Okay, so Menashe and Ephraim, yeah, we spoke about Jewish continuity versus uh, how we're flourishing, how we're growing, how are we making it big, beautiful, and, and come in. Uh, you know, that doesn't make sense in English. I lost my word, but... Okay? Um, and, and, then the, and then the famine hits. And then the famine hits, and it hits very, very, very hard. So Perak Membez, chapter 42, opens up. The Yaakov sees, He sees that there's food in Egypt, and he says to his, his children, why are you making yourselves, um, why are you showing us that you have food? Um, there's a question, did they have food? Did they not have enough food? Um, some of the Mepharshim talk about the idea that they have had experience in their history of famine, and where's that place of trusting in Hashem that whatever we have will be enough for us. Um, and so they were, whether they had a lot or they didn't, but there was a place where they were sort of like, our paradigm for famine is to trust in Hashem. And Yaakov's like, that's not so cool because the people around you are looking around and they think that you're hoarding and that's going to bring anger and, and jealousy and all this kind of things. So they're going to go on, they're going to go down. The other thing that the Mepharshim talk about is that Shever um, is... Is another another meaning of the word another meaning of the root of the oh my gosh try this one more time another meaning of the word shever is hope that Yaakov sees that there's hope in Egypt that he doesn't know what it is but he knows just like Mrs. Potiphar saw that she was somehow connected to Yosef she saw it, but she didn't know what the details were Yaakov sees that there's hope in Egypt he does not know what it is but he knows that we need to be going down to Egypt to find this hope. And when the brothers are gonna, when the brothers go down, um, so I mean, just imagine this whole scenario, right? Yosef knows that they have to come at some point. There, there's no way the famine is is spreading across the whole Fertile Crescent. There's no way that they're not going to be able to come down. Um, and Yosef actually sets up. I guess some kind of passport control at every single entrance to Egypt. And um, the Medrash talks about this. And when the brothers come down and they're like, okay, the last place we sent Joseph was towards Egypt. Let's fan out and look for him. So they all come in different entrances and they're all looking. And where are they looking for Yosef? Wait, were they, they were actually like looking for. They were looking for Yosef. They were actively looking for Yosef. Where are they looking for him? In the slave markets. Who's cleaning the streets? Who's they're kind of paying? Yosef was heading this direction. Where is he? Why are they looking for Yosef? The brothers understood almost immediately that by selling Yosef, it was a terrible thing to do. Did almost immediately, when they saw that their father was not consoled. 22 years is a very long time to have your parent in pain for something that you actually did. Yeah. It's like, not cool. So they are going down to Egypt. The last place they knew he was headed in this direction was Egypt. So they're looking for Yosef, but Yosef's also looking for them. Okay? Whoa. And if we know, the Rambam talks about the idea, when do you know that somebody has done full tshuva? Anybody remember in the Rambam? First chapter of the Rambam, within the first four halachas, it says, if you are in the same position, with the same strength, and you do not repeat the same avera, then you know that you've really done tshuva. 
And so what Yosef is going to be working to do, the lot of the parchment, specifically Hasidus talks about, Yosef is looking to re-stage his sale and to say what will happen. We're going to pit the children of Leah against the, the children of Rachel. We're going to favor one of them, and we're going to see what happens. Let's see. Let's, and that's really when we're looking through this whole parsha. that's kind of a lot of what's happening, where Yosef, and I'm going to talk about it a lot, Yosef is trying to get his brothers to properly do tshuva. They clearly are on, the, on that path because they're going to look for Yosef. The problem is they don't even know where to look for Yosef. And when, they're, when we're going to have the showdown between the brothers and Yosef, they're not going to recognize him, right? So, so what happens? So the brothers come from different things, and all of a sudden they find themselves. Uh, um, okay, look at chapter forty-two, verse six. Yosef is the ruler of the whole country. He's the one who sustains everybody. He's giving food to everybody. They bow to Yosef, and Yosef, Yosef sees his brothers. He recognizes them, and he is going to speak very harshly to them. He's not going to be nice to them. He wants to push them to, he wants to push them to a place that they're actually are they really sincere in what they're doing? Just you know, pause for a second. The brothers come to Egypt. They're going shopping, right? They're going to shop for food. They come through a bunch of entrances. The next thing they know, they're in the palace by the by the you know the vice president, having like conversations about what's going on and he accuses them of being spies like whoa where did this come from but if we understand that Yosef was looking for his brothers as much as the brothers were looking for Yosef then we understand what's going on over here and so Yosef um it, it yes if Yosef was now in his position of power why didn't he send like a note to his father that he's alive it's a good question a lot of Mofarshim are, are a lot of Mofarshim bring up the question that he doesn't know how much Yaakov knew about this Yaakov sent him to go check on the brothers. From there, he gets grabbed and sold. He doesn't know how much Yaakov is, knows about the whole situation. There's another Mepharsh that talks about the idea that of the, we talked about when they sold Joseph, there was a minion, there were 10 people who were part of the pact that says we're not going to tell. And according to some opinions, Yosef was number 10. And so if there's a pact that we're not telling, that he's not able to say anything. So you have two different ways of looking at the same situation, depending on which Mepharshim you're, you're looking at. So Yosef, uh, it's Yosef sees them, he, rec- he remembers the dreams, and they've already bowed to him once. So this is, this is something that's going down. Okay, and he says, you're spies. And they said, no, we're not spies. And then somehow the conversation comes out that we are 12 sons of one father. We're going to go back to Yaakov. Yaakov is going to be not impressed that they gave all the information. And they're like, he knew so much about us. There was no way we couldn't give him this information. Um, and, and, and Rashi brings over here that, um, that when he's, he's accusing them of spies. So Rashi like sort of fills in the conversation that he says that they say no. We're looking for our brother. One is lost, and he's and he, you know we're looking for him. And, the, and he says, Yosef says to them, and if you found him, what would you do? They would say, they said, oh, we would pay all the money we could to get him back. And if they didn't want to sell him back, they're like, oh, we would rip down the country and take him. He's like, I told you, you're spies. Like this is what this is what I'm telling you the whole time. You're not here with you're here with you know bad intentions. Um, and and uh, and so then so this is what his what does he say? What's his first thing that he says? First, he says, keep everybody here, said one. In the end, he ends up holding one brother. Who does he hold? Binyamin. No, he doesn't hold. Binyamin didn't come. Shimon. Binyamin didn't come. He holds Shimon. Why does he hold Shimon? Think for a second. Why would he hold Shimon? Shimon 
Adrian was the one who didn't want to. No, that was Ruben. That was Ruben? Why would he hold Shimon? Is he the one who wants to like... Came up with the idea. Shimon came up with the idea. Shimon and Levi. After Ruben, right? What? Shimon was a second after Ruben. He's second after Ruben. And Ruben kind of already said something like he didn't want to sell him, and Shimon kind of second one. So So, I don't know. Maybe it could be. Shimon hasn't done Shuvah yet, and Ruben has. So 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 Rashi gives a much more simple a much more simple uh, explanation. He says that Yosef has had experience with Shimon and Levi together. They've gone in and they killed out all of Shem. And he's like, we need to separate these two because we don't know what's going to happen from here until they go back. So he says to them, he says, I'm holding Shimon here and the rest of you go back and don't come back without your brother. Right? Um, And what happens when they leave Mitzrayim? What happens when they leave Mitzrayim and they stop at the inn? First of all, if you take a look over here in the middle over here, at 42, verse 22 and 23. Before the money was put back in their sack, one of the things that he hears, um, first he says, go, first he says go, go bring back your thing, but he hears them talking, he hears Reuben saying, this is, why is this happening to us? Because of what we did to the, because we, said, we sinned against our brother. So he's, they're already having this conversation, um, and the, the, he, Reuben is saying that, his, it's payback time. Now we're getting we're getting we're getting uh, we're getting payback for when we sold our brother. His his blood his blood is is crying out for revenge, and they don't know that Yosef understands because they have an interpreter going between them. Rashi says the interpreter was one of his sons. I think it was Ephraim who was acting as the interpreter. Yosef was acting as if he didn't speak. Uh, he didn't speak Hebrew. So that's what they do. So Aviv, what happens when they get to the to the to the Motel Six? They find the money. They find the money in their bags. They find the money in their bags, and they are the money that they were going to give. The them. money they came down with money. They gave money. Right? They bought food. He loads up their bags, right. and on the top of their bags, everybody's money's there, and they are freaking out because this is not a good scenario. No matter how you look at it, this is just not a good scenario. Um, the being called to Yosef in the first place, so they don't know it's Yosef being called into the main palace. It's it's bad news. Anyway, they go back. And they go back to Yaakov, and Yaakov doesn't say, wow, this is amazing. Yaakov's like, why did you say? Why did you give over all this information? Why did you tell them that they have another brother? Why didn't you? And they're like, we just, we couldn't. He knew so much about us that we couldn't, we couldn't not tell him the, uh, the truth. And he tells them what they told him. And Yaakov's like, forget it. We're not going back. Not happening. You killed my sons. You killed my sons. Yeah. So they're, so they're going, uh, Yosef is gone now. Binyamin's going to be gone, and that's I'm going to have nothing left. So Reuben says, I, I think Reuben in the Chumash gets like a bad, um, bad PR because <laughs> it can't be all that he said. Like the stuff that, that you know Reuben says to his father. What? Here, you need the magnet. Um, so Reuben says to his father when they're talking about going back in verse 37. Reuben says to his father, "You can kill my two sons if I don't bring Binyamin back." That's not super comforting. I just want to say, that's, if I don't come back, I'll take Benjamin, I'll be in charge of Benjamin. If I don't bring Benjamin back, you can kill my two sons. Your grandsons. Your grandsons. Wait. There's a lot about that I don't know how to unpack. I just, I just, you lost my thought. Wait. They're saying, we have to go back, we can't go back without Benjamin. Yes. Right? So Ruby's like, I'll take care of Benjamin. If I don't bring Benjamin back, you can kill my two sons. Right? 
Not so cool. But like, not a cool collateral. Ruben says this. So Yako did no. He did not accept that. He did not accept that. No, no, no. But um, but basically, what happens in verse forty three, in chapter forty three, is that the the hunger gets very, very, very bad, and Yehuda speaks up. And one of the reasons that Yehuda ends up being king is because every time in the Torah that we have a conversation about Yehuda, he always ends up we might say begrudgingly doing the right thing. He does not thrive in a place of power. Yosef thrives in a place of power. He does very, very well in leadership roles and, you know, Yehuda does not. And Yehuda um, basically says, he basically, when Yehuda says to them that, um, he says, if you don't send, if you don't, we're not going without Benjamin. And he says that, um, uh, where is it? Okay. Take a look at verse 8. They're having a back and forth conversation. We can't go back without him. Da, da, da. And he says, why did you tell him? Da, 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 da. So in verse 8, Yehuda says, Yisrael Aviv, Shilcha Hanariti, send the boy with me. Yvenakuma Venelcha will go and we'll live and we won't die. Not us, not our children. Anochi Ervenu Miyado, Miyado Tivakshenu. I personally guarantee him. And if I don't bring him back, you could come to hold me responsible for it. And Rashi says, Rubin says, in this world and in the world to come, if I do not bring this child back, I am personally responsible here and in the world to come. I will never rest until you make sure, until I make sure that we get him back. Um, and if I don't, it's a, I will have, it, be, it will be like I sinned to you all the days of my life. That is a powerful leader. The powerful leader is the one who says, I am taking personal responsibility. I am the one, the same thing with Yehuda and Tamar. When, she, when he could have just been quiet and he says, no, she, she is right and I am wrong, um, to, to be able to step up into this place of hoda'ah, not just thanks, but of acknowledgement and of saying, this is what I need to do and this is what has to happen. Um, so they end up going and they have a weird encounter with Yosef. What's the first thing? They bring back the money. They bring another batch of money. And then they come back. They go da- back to, uh, they go back to, uh, they go back to Egypt. And in the sixth, the sixth Aliyah, Yosef sees that they have Binyamin, and he uh, he prepares a meal, and um, and they all they sit down and they eat with him. And this is the first time Rashi says that in twenty two years the brothers have sat together and feasted. Um, and they don't even realize that the reason that they can do it is because Yosef is with them. They still don't know Yosef, but there's something about the situation that they let down their guard enough that they were able to, um, to, 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 to feast. And Yosef looks into his magic goblet and he puts Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, Yehudi, Yisachar, Zavulin at a table together and Dan Naftali together and God and Asher together. And he says, and this one has no partner, he'll sit next to me. And that's how they sit down and they have a meal. It's the first time that they've all done that. Um, so it, as far as buying games, like this has got to be, yeah, this has got to be high up there. Um, and they try to give back the money and the money, no, he says the money was paid up, da, da, da. Now, in the questions that I always have about this, you know, he asks them about their father, da, 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 da. Okay, they have a whole conversation there, okay? Then... Yosef goes to the side and he cries. He cries a lot in his parsha. Mm-hmm. He keeps going to the side and crying. Yeah, good for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's good to have a good cry. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. It's, it's, it, there's a whole, there's a lot of chassidus on it. Um, um, and then they, and then the party's over and he's sending them back. 
And I, I, I'm going to give you a question I don't have the answer to. The last time they left Egypt, they got to the, to the hotel or wherever. I realized they had the money. Why didn't they check their bags before they left Egypt the second time? I don't know what the answer to the question is. I don't know what the answer to the question is. But they go off, and the money is returned. And not only is the money returned, but this magic goblet is planted in... In Binyamin's bag. In Binyamin's bag. So I don't even know why they didn't check. But they they leave, they start going back to Egypt, they start going back to the land of Canaan, and they immediately get chased. And this is really the, this is kind of the crux of where Yosef is setting this up. The whole time he was giving Yosef, sorry, Yosef was giving Binyamin more portions and more money and more clothing. And he's really setting the stage where one of the children of Rachel is getting shown clear favoritism. Um, and what are the brothers going to do about this? And so they, they go and they, they uh, so somebody, they get chased. Uh, okay, something, okay, they leave, okay, verse four, chapter 44, verse four, they left the city, they're not so far, and Yosef sends somebody after them, and they said, how could you do this to my master? How could you steal his... His goblet, don't you know that that's what he divines with? And how could you, you know? Uh, so maybe that's why they didn't check. They weren't so far away. I don't know. Um, and they said, why? How could you say this? How could you accuse us of this? How, where, where is this coming from? I don't even know what you're talking about, right? And we would never do such a thing. That the money that you, we got last time, we returned, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, if you're going to have a, a movie and they go from the oldest... And they start opening the bags and the drum roll is getting more dramatic and more dramatic and more dramatic. And then they get open to Binyamin and Hine Binyamin has the Gvia. And what are they going to do? And the first thing that, that we see about this is they, they automatically band around, you, around Binyamin. They, maybe he did steal it. Maybe he did steal it, right? Um, uh, they, so he says, the, the person said in verse 10, in verse 9, whoever has it is going to die and everybody else is, you know, oh no, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and we could, oh, we, no, so they're, they're so sure about their case. They say, you know, whoever has it is going to die and we're going to all be the slaves. And they, he says, no, whoever has it is going is to just be taken back. And they open up and they go all the way through. And verse 13, they tear their clothes and they are, they're devastated. They, they unload their, they, they, quickly put everything back on their donkeys and they're going right back to Yosef and they're still, Yosef's still in the same place. He hasn't even moved. It's been so fast. I guess that's why they didn't check. Um, and Yosef's like, I can't believe you would do such a thing to me after a person like I am. I know all these things and how to do this. And, and Yehuda basically says over here that you, we can't, you found, our, you found our sin. You got it. You got us. This is, you know, um, but you need to send this boy back Okay, oh, oh, so they all say, oh, we'll all be your slaves. And Yosef's like, no, 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 just keep you one guy as a servant. And the rest of you can go back to your father. And that is where our Parsha ends. Now, we talk about this a lot, that, right? Really cliffhanger. We talk a lot about that sometimes a Parsha will start um, in the middle of a parak, right? Because we talk about that chapters are not, chapters and verses are not Jewish in origin. So when you look at, the theo- a different theological breakup of the story, that's where you can have it. But here, the Torah itself is breaking up the story literally in the middle of the story. The middle of the story is like, the next thing, Vayigash, Yehuda is going to sort of gather himself and he's going to step forward and he's going he's to you know, advocate for his brother and he's going to 
this is really like, in a way, really one of the things that Torah is telling us is that there's two different stories going on here. The first story is the story of the tshuva, the story of the brothers totally making a full circle. And they could maybe, maybe, maybe Binyamin really did steal the cup. They don't know. Maybe, you know, like, maybe they don't know what's going on. But that's not what they, they automatically band around him and they're going to come and they're going to fight for him. And that's, we're going to have in next week's Parsha where we're going to, we're going to sort of see how that plays itself out, how the, the declaration and da 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 Okay. We're doing so great for time. This is amazing. We finished um, it. We never finished. We, fin- we, we finished. Now I can even talk about three different things. Okay. I want to talk about three different things. I want to talk about um, how is it possible that the brothers are standing in front of their brother and they don't recognize him. Does he look like crazy and stuff? I mean, I'm just saying, like listen, him. you're right. 22 years have passed. He left, he was 17 years old. And now he's, now he's, you know, 22 and 17, 39. I think that's the math, right? Yeah. He's, yeah, so between 17 and, but how do you not recognize your brother? It's like such a crazy thing. How do you not they recognize? Could have this image of him in their head, though, of like, like for them, there's always like this like bit of like tension and resentment. So for them, they're still imagining him in this like lowly place. Like they can't even like fathom the idea that like, like what they did was so bad. Like how could he even like be in such a high like be elevated like this? They never exp- they. Yes, but I want to. I want to. I want to. Still recommend the face. Well, they right. Yeah. Think about it. You see a relative after a long period of time, and they go, "Oh, you've grown so much," and you're like, "That's ridiculous." Like, of course I've grown, but like, yeah, they think about it. But they recognize. Like the fact I that they don't recognize is, is. I think it's very. What's in? Have you had a comment? When they go to Yosef the first time, um, it says that they prostrate themselves with their faces to the ground, and like that's how they like start interacting with Yosef. So maybe like he they, just, they didn't like, see. They didn't look up to his face. Yeah. So maybe it was like the fact of like maybe they just didn't want to. Like they were trying to be respectful, or they weren't trying to incite anger. So maybe like they could be they weren't actually looking at him straight yeah. on. And could be his voice changed. Like, There's a lot of that. I think also like when Yosef was in Canaan, they had so much resentment towards him. Like in a way that like Astellas, they weren't looking at him clearly. They didn't see him as mm-hmm. Yosef. You're saying they weren't looking yeah. at him. You're saying they weren't seeing him clearly. They didn't see him as Yosef. They saw him as like something in the way of what they wanted. They didn't see him as a person, hence they were able to like, yeah, there was do everything so easily. Nothing. So I think now they're not seeing it in that negative view, that, and they don't know it's him, which, again, doesn't have that negative view on top of it. They're, right. they're like, who is this? Like, like they can't right. see it. Also, he treats them very harshly, so maybe they don't associate that All All of those are, of those are, are, are good starts to our conversation. Um, I, I'll give you a silly, a silly answer. The silly answer is, have you ever opened the refrigerator and you can't find something and you scream to your mother, where is the thing? And she'll say, it is right in front of your nose. It is on the second shelf on the right hand side. Where's the ketchup? Whatever it is, right? It's right in front of your nose and you don't see it. Um, A lot of the things that everybody said is part of why they don't see it. But a bigger thing that that I want to sort of highlight here is that one of the reasons that Yaakov, we spoke about this a little bit, but I want to pull it back in here. One of the reasons that Yaakov favored, favored Yosef was because he understood that Jewish history wasn't going to be kind if we were only going to be shepherds, right? The brothers were all shepherds. They were isolated from the world. They didn't want to have anything to do with the world. They weren't engaging with the world. And that was, 
amazing for the majority of the people. But Yaakov understood that for Jewish history, that was going to be very, very short-lived. How many years did we get to be shepherds? 400 years? Like in Jewish history, that's a, it's a blink of an eye. Um, and if we did not know not only how to live in exile, but if we did not know how to rule in exile, we were in deep trouble. And that was really what, what Yaakov was looking at. When he saw Yosef, he saw somebody who had the potential, Yosef Hatzadik, who had the potential to go into exile, to go into the worst exile that was possible, but not only be okay, but to actually be the boss of everything that was going on. The Chomish talks about that nobody could move their hand or feet without Yosef. That is an incredible, incredible level of engagement and control. And Yaakov said, we, the Jewish people, are not just here. These are my words, not his words. We're not just here to sort of flow through and not have damage done to us because a lot of our history, that's what we were trying to do. Keep your head down and hope that they don't kill us. But our ultimate, what we need to be doing in Gullus is changing it, is ruling it, is affecting it in such a deep way that not that everybody has to become Jewish, that isn't the point, but that everybody has to bow to one God to understand that there is Hashem in the world, to understand that when Yosef is giving food, he isn't only giving food to them, he's giving them meaning, he's giving them purpose. And that's really what Yaakov was aiming for with sort of highlighting Yosef a little bit. The brothers didn't see it because just like you didn't see the ketchup in the refrigerator, they did not imagine that somebody could be at that level of engagement, at that level of power, and still be from Jew, to have children who were worthy of being part of the tribes. It was, it was in front of their face, and they just didn't see it. It was so beyond the realm of their imagination, they just didn't see it. They, it, it it wasn't even there. They never even said, oh, he has my brother's eyes, he sounds a little, he looks like my father. Yosef looked exactly like Yaakov. Like they should have been able to see that this was a familiar face. They couldn't see it because they couldn't see it. They, they, it was so past their imagination that there was nothing about that that they could actually imagine. So even as they're going through this whole situation, they, they, they just don't see it. They, 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 it's, it's not anything that they could work with or they could they were looking for Yosef and the street sweepers and the and the garbage collectors that's where they thought they were going to find him and they didn't find him there so they figured uh, we don't know where he is he's gone I don't know right so that's 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 one thing I want to I want to give us first all of us I want to give us all a bracha that we understand how powerful we are and how we have the ability to make real change in the world we might not all be viceroys but everybody in our own area of influence we have the ability to be leaders and not just followers and not just survive, but to really thrive in such a deep, real way. So I want to give us a bracha, first of all, that we get it, that we see that about ourselves. Because if we can't see it, we can't see it. And we can't activate what we can't see. So that's my first bracha that we should be able to see about ourselves, how beautiful and how powerful we are and, and the, uh, the, what we can do in the world. So that was one thing that I wanted to talk about. The other thing that I wanted to talk about was this fascination with dreams. Got a lot of dreams going on here. We've got a lot of dreams. We have Yosei's dreams, we have Paro's dreams, the butler, the baker, like what's the big deal with all the dreams, right? Um, so we know what's, what's, what's a dream? Ultimately, what's a dream? Two opposites. Well, it could be two opposites, right? It could be, it could be opposites connecting. That sounds like that came out of Rabbi Kaufman's class or something. That's true. Oh, that's true. <laughs> okay, so, um, so, 
a dream, you never dream about something that you don't actually know about. You could have mixed up pieces of a dream. You could. But you're never going to dream about your, your weird creature is actually going to be a composite of animals that you already know. You're never going to have a totally out of the realm, which is why, parenthetically, we talk about for prophecy, one of the requirements to be a prophet is a very good imagination because the, God speaks to prophets in dreams. And if you don't have a lot to work with, then you're kind of limited in what kind of messages you can get. Um, and as Amber pointed out, part of a dream is that you have opposites going on. Things happen that don't actually make sense. You know? You pointed out in the context of the class. Bless you. Right? That you have... So, so on the one hand, you have things that happen in a dream. You know, the, the, the Gemara always gives the example of an elephant going through an eye of a needle, and the eye of the needle didn't get bigger, and the elephant didn't get smaller. But somehow in a dream, that makes sense, and that's totally normal. Um, the other thing about a dream is that we're not in control. It's what happens when we are not in control. A person is supposed to be in control of the situation. When we dream and we have a loss of control, that's when things, whether you talk about the things that we were thinking about, the things we were bothered about, all those kind of things that come up in our head, maybe it's prophetic, I don't know, probably not, but just, just, go, just putting that out there, it's probably not prophetic. It kind of, and when you try to, you know, when you try to stop a dream, something's happening in a dream and you want to stop it, what happens? You wake up. You wake up. Because the dream is loss of control. You can't control a dream. You can only sort of float along with the dream. And one of the things that Hasidus talks a lot about is that, is that Gullus is like a dream. That there is a place in Gullus where we are not in control and we can't really, we can't control it. That is sort of on the <coughs> negative side. We're not in control and we can't, we can't direct it. But the good thing about Gullus is that opposites can happen. And in real organized life, our, our service of Hashem would be step by step. And this is, how, this is what we would do now. And this would be our next step. And this is, how, this is the growth trajectory. And this is the normal, you know, blah, 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 the next step. But in a dream, you could do anything. You could, you know, you could do anything. And, and that is sort of the advantage of our space of Gullus right now. The space of our Gullus is like we could do things that bring us to higher levels of connectedness to Hashem. To, to, nobody in, in this space of Gullus will say, I can't believe you're doing that. Like, who do you think you are to take on that mitzvah or to take on that behavior? You really want to be careful with what comes out of your mouth? Like, who are you kidding? Like... That's, a, that's, the, that's the advantage of Gullus as a dream, that we could do things that are not logical. The, and the hope is, and the bracha is, that as soon as we realize that it is a dream and we all wake up, then we'll be in a place of, we'll be in a, in a Mashiach space, and we will have, we get to have our progress with us that we made in the dream um, in, in a place of Mashiach where we've actually made strides and we've made differences um, and we, we've sort of deepened our relationship with Hashem. So those are two things that I want to talk about the Parsha. I also want to talk for a second about Hanukkah because, it, because it's Hanukkah, right? So first of all, today is, today is still day four, right? Because we lit four last night, so today is day four. Um, and uh, whether you, the, the, one of the beautiful things about day four is that whether you go like Beis Hillel or Beis Shammai, we're all the same today, Right? 
on, on, if you're counting down or you're counting up, we both hit four today. Um, and and I, I want to give us a bracha that as we continue to spread our light and as we can sp- continue to shine, that we understand that there is so much more that unites us than that divides us. And if we can find that space and we can shine it out, uh, we will all be in a much, we'll be in a much healthier place um, if we can actually do that. So that's, that's my bracha to us. And the other thing about Hanukkah, which is sort of a shout out to Jewish women, that so much of the miracle of Hanukkah came by and through Jewish women um, protesting the Greek behavior, chopping, chopping people's heads off, like, you know, all in a day's work, right? Um, uh, and I want us to, to not discount our own personal power, that I don't, I do not advocate chopping off heads. Okay, Stella, sorry, not today, okay? Tomorrow? We'll talk about it tomorrow. We'll talk about it tomorrow. Um, uh, that the place of, one of the, one of the, the very powerful stories was the, uh, with the daughter of, I think, Yochanan Cohen Gadol, that there was, a Greek de- there was a Greek decree that the night of every, everybody's wedding, every girl's wedding, the Greek general in the neighborhood had to have her first, and she basically stood up and she said, how long are you going to let them do this? How long are you going to... Meaning it was the, the place of saying, this is the status quo and we can't fight it and what are we going to do about it? But it took one person, what got them, you know, according to, to that to that Gemara, what got the Maccabeum going was the fact that one girl stood up and said, this cannot continue. We cannot let this happen anymore. Um, so I want to give us a bracha that we, we choose our battles and that we, we uh, understand that we do have a voice that we should use and that we should, maybe not every single fight is ours, but there is something that is ours that is so real to us and so deep to us, and we should speak up and not just assume because nobody else is speaking up, therefore there's nothing to speak up about. Um, and I want to give us a bracha that as our menorah gets fuller and fuller, our light gets fuller and fuller, we do end up stopping after eight. I'm sorry, that is... That is the way it works over here. We don't add, uh, we don't keep adding to the mitzvahs. Um, but, huh? Three more days. We're not counting three more days. We're just saying, like, we're, you know. But, um, but I want to give us, I want to give us a bracha that even though we stop adding candles on the menorah, that we should continue to be adding light and warmth in our lives to our, to our, to ourselves, to the people around us, to our avodah Hashem, to understand that we continue to add light even if we don't add candles. So I want to wish us all so much pressure, so much, so pressure. much, no, 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 not pressure. I don't want to, wait. so much, so much power and so much light and so much love. Also this Shabbos and Sunday is Rish Chodesh. So we're shockingly enough moving out of the month of Kislev. We're going to bless the month of Tavis this month. Plug, if you go to Shul this week, you'll have beautiful Hallel going on, both for Rosh Chodesh and for um, and for Hanukkah, so that's going to be going on in Shul. Get there by 10.30 if you want to be part of Hollow. Um, and the place of Teves, and it's interesting that Teves, the end of Hanukkah is the month of Teves. Teves is like not high on the list of great, great months in the Jewish calendar. We have the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem. There's like stuff going on. It's like, it's like not so fun, but, 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 but we're starting it on Hanukkah. That means even whatever it is that's going on, we still have to be able to bring some light into Teves. We only get two of the two of the lights of Hanukkah in the month of Teves, but that's enough for us to we talk about it all the time. A little bit of light dispels a lot of darkness. That we have two little Hanukkah lights in still 
on Hanukkah that are in Tevis, and we should use that light to shine through the month of Tevis, to shine and to illuminate our lives and the lives of people around us. And please, God, this year we won't have to fast for the siege of Jerusalem, but we will be able to celebrate the reunification. L'chaim.